All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. Tonight we are going to be doing a movie that uh, is an anime film and one of the greatest anime films of all time, according to our guest. This is going to be episode 148 on Spirited Away. And for some reason, I have 147 written down here. Let me double confirm this real quickly here. This is such great Opening content here. Uh, it is 148. All right. Episode 148 of the show. You can find the show notes more at actualanarchy.com slash 148. And before I get into the last night's portion of the show and introduce our guest, let's say hello to Robert, who has just made the move, the trek across, at least halfway across the state, and is now settling into a dollhouse of sorts to record this episode with us tonight. How are you doing, Robert? Hey, everybody. How are you? I am all right. Thanks for having me once again back on the show. Well, you are an integral, integral part, and uh, I enjoy having these conversations with you anyway. I mean, that's kind of the whole impetus for the show. We were having discussions about this type of stuff and uh, we were like, hey, let's just record this and have a show. And so that's where this all came from uh, almost three years ago now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Look at to, to, from, the, from the, the humble beginnings to the illustrious heights we're at now. We are so high right now. <laughs> we are the number one anarcho-capitalist perspective movie review show in the world. We could go. It's probably even in the universe. <laughs> we could go that big. Yes, yes. I think you're right. Uh, now I don't know if there are, in fact, any other shows that do this. So details, sir. By details. default, we are, details. We are the number cares. one. We're also the worst. We are the worst. So, um, speaking of the worst, the worst, why don't we get into the other worst show that we do, The Last Nighters? Okay, buddy. All right, here we go. Hey everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, The Last Nighters, and The Last Nighters can be found on the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. Check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Tonight is going to be episode 91 of The Last Nighters. You can find the show notes and more at lastnighters.com slash 91. And we're going to be doing Spirited Away as we welcome back a guest from a while ago. He is Olaf, the anarcho-viking, and he claims that this movie is so awesome that he's watched it at least 20 times. Spirited Away, Spirited Away is an award-winning visual masterpiece with a coming-of-age story fused with a Shinto fused with the Shinto religion. So if we were doing like a restaurant menu, I'd call it Asian fusion cuisine, if you will. And uh, well, it's not exactly great for young kids, which I had thought it might be until Wife Unit and I started watching it. We're like, oh, the kids would probably not uh, really enjoy this. They'd have nightmares. Granted, they are only four and six. Um, but it is an interesting and somewhat confusing movie that I'm hoping that our guest and Robert can enlighten me on and help me to appreciate. So, Olaf, welcome to the show. You were our guest for The Outlaw King a while back, and that uh, show was lastnarrative.com slash 50, and you brought a little bit of that Triple H heat to that discussion. So welcome back. 
Oh, yes. Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be back. <laughs> Again, totally different movie, but, uh, you know, we do everything. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, we were hoping to have you back uh, a few months ago. Right. We, we had it all booked up for the Truman Show mm-hmm. and uh, something, ha- uh, some event happened and, and it fell through. Yeah. So uh, one of our uh, multi-time guests, uh, Mike C, filled in and I think he did an admirable job. Uh, but uh, we do really enjoy having you back. And so thank you for joining us and for recommending this movie. Yeah, yeah, no problem. <laughs> I hope, uh, you know, you can, you'll be able to appreciate it somewhat more. I mean, I think it's a great movie, just, but you have to watch it a few times. I think uh, when you start really seeing what's going on with the different characters, it's, uh, it becomes much, you, 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 you get more depth uh, into what, what's happening. It's, it, it, it can be a little superficial uh, in the beginning, but it's uh, there's a lot going on there. So Okay, well, I think uh, that take is probably in line with, with my viewing. Like, Unfortunately, because of the nature of how my wife and I watch movies, this was broken out over three different nights. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time viewing, and we we're like, wow, it feels like I'm on some kind of an acid trip. <laughs> and I don't, <laughs> I don't understand what's going on. Uh, so yeah, I think multiple viewings might be something that, uh, would be required to really make sense of this. So hopefully this discussion will help flesh that out a bit, uh, before we get into the, uh, Google description, which is usually how we start these off, uh, Robert, any comments thus far before we get into that? Well, it sounds like we have another Batman versus Superman situation on our hands. Now. I it think sounds like we've got a movie that on first watch with a superficial understanding of might not be able to get the most out of it, but with an expert on hand and repeated viewings, we may be witnessing a masterpiece by um, good old Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli. I know this is a film that got quite a bit of acclaim when it came over to the States back in 2001. Um, I don't know how, it was It was really well received in Japan in the years previous to this. And then it got a decent release from Disney, as I recall, back in the day. But it's kind of maintained its appeal. Um, I watched it again furiously today in preparation for the show because I have been moving and everything is in boxes and you know, whatever. And I had this DVD copy and I've got four different DVD players on hand. And in fact, I traded on five, no, six different DVD players. Not a single one of them would play the thing. Oh. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Is that the uh, so, copyright protection uh, is like a, a region three disc and you're on region one players or something? It was for US only. Oh, so I don't know what the problem was. The the disc two bonus disc worked just fine, but every time I put the disc one in, it wouldn't even recognize it as a DVD. <laughs> so I don't know what the problem was, but uh, luckily I was able to watch it. And so yeah, we're here to discuss it. I've seen the movie before several times, but it had been probably at least fifteen years since I'd seen it. It was good to get refreshed. All right, sounds good. Well. Uh, let's get into the Google description, and then, uh, Olaf, you can make us appreciate the nuance of this, I think. <laughs> so here we go. Spirited Away, 2001 Fantasy slash Mystery, two hours and five minutes, 8.6 on that IMDb, 96% Metacritic, 97% Rod Tomatoes, and 96% Google users like it. So it has pretty much universal acclaim, and I believe it won a couple of Academy Awards and uh, did really well in the box office uh, in addition to that. The description is, in this animated feature by noted Japanese director Hayao Miyazaki, and I know I butchered that, uh, 10-year-old Chihiro and her parents stumble upon a seemingly abandoned amusement park. After her mother and father are turned into giant pigs, Chihiro meets the mysterious Haku, 
who explains that the park is a resort for supernatural beings who need a break from their time spent in the earthly realm and that she must work there to free herself and her parents. Uh, in the U.S., it was released August 31st, 2002. Uh, Disney and John Lasseter uh, were integral in bringing this to the United States. And um, I read somewhere that they actually rewrote the film uh, to align the English words with the Japanese uh, animation. So like the words were originally, the animation was tied to the words in, in Japanese. And so when they wrote the film for the U.S., they used the movements of the mouths and they, they reworded it in English to line up. So it doesn't have that um, Kung Fu style, uh, my dragon style, you know, beat your tiger style kind of stuff from uh, <laughs> American Pie, I believe. Um, so, Robert, let's go to you with your reaction to this. Uh, and then we will go to Olaf for the uh, for the explanations. Well, yeah, it is a movie that you notice a whole lot of symbolism. You see like the the three headless, you know, the three heads and you see. I don't know, just all the different creatures that, you know, like the, the water dragons and stuff like that. And, you, and you're going, well, I know this is like Japanese folklore and things like that, but you don't necessarily know, I don't know how, how literal they're being or how um, true to the history they're being, or if they're kind of taking it off in their own direction, I don't know. So it'll be interesting to hear from Olaf about that. Um, personally, this is not my favorite Ghibli film. Um, I, I think my first Ghibli film I ever saw was in my neighbor Totoro back in the day when I was introduced to these guys. But I've seen almost all of their stuff. Uh, they're a talented, talented studio that has produced a lot of excellent stuff. My favorite probably being Princess Mononoke, uh, followed by probably Howl's Moving Castle and, oh, I don't know, a bunch of other ones. But um, this one is, I, I recognize how well made this movie is, but it's not quite up my alley. So it's interesting that it's up Olaf's alley, right, perfectly square, hitting the strikes. So I want to hear from him, just just the themes that he saw, and um, you know, just just his impression of the whole thing. Maybe maybe a little of background if he knows any of that on you know the, the Shinto stuff and all that. So yeah, yeah. So Olaf, over to you because uh, I didn't know what the Shinto was going on in this thing, so I was a bit confused. But it sounds like repeated viewings with a little bit of an underlying understanding of the story itself, then the nuance comes out. Then you understand what characters represent and how they interact. Yeah. Um, Well, let's, let's take even a further step back and kind of, you have to appreciate where he's coming from Miyazaki because uh, it's pretty clear that almost all of his movies are inspired by an underlying ideology. So which sometimes overlap with what we believe in, but sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but it's I appreciate seeing that coming out of his movies. So, just for instance, in in uh, in 2003, he was invited to Academy Awards in Los Angeles. I think it was the 75th year. He rejected it on the grounds that the United States had troops in Iraq, and he did not want to visit a country that was bombing Iraq. Uh, so, I think that was a very uh, you know principled stance of him to to to, to take. And um, so I appreciate a lot of his opinions and stances on on issues like this. Uh, he his dad was a, an air aircraft designer in World War II as well, and he saw the horrors of World War II growing up in Japan because his country was bombed. Um, and he's also an environmentalist. Uh, you can see that clearly in the movies. Uh, and there's some themes in the movie that is very very much striking envir- environmentalistic and. Uh, the uh, the Shinto stuff also shows 
uh, obviously, with just the na- the phenomenons that exist, such as the spirits in the first place, and they always have a connection to nature, usually. Uh, and you see this in the movie uh, with uh, two things, uh, for instance. Haku himself is a river spirit, but he has been robbed of his past because of the, the dry out of his river and the then subsequent uh, buildings that were put on top of it. So he can't remember where he is from, so he can't find his way home. But he's a river spirit. Uh, the other spirit also that we see in the movie, the more troubling one, where really the environmentalism kind of comes comes forth, uh, is with what they believe first, or the witch that rules the bathhouse, Yubaba. Uh, she, they first thought that this was a stink spirit because it came and it smelled really bad. And uh, they assigned this particular undecided guests to Chihiro and her mentor, Lin, in the bathhouse. and But it turns out it's not a stink spirit. It's also a river spirit that has been collecting all the garbage that was put into his river. And now he's coming to relieve this garbage that uh, were dumped on uh, on uh, on his river, in his river. All right, hold on. Hold uh, on. This, this is no face? No, no, no. This is the uh, stink spirit. You know, the muddy, slimy, grimy, big brown ball of just mud and 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 you know stink that comes in and slides through the through the halls in the bathtub and turns you know the rice just rots in the bowl when he approaches the uh, uh, Linda standing there with the rice balls and they just turn black and brown and rots away. And it's when Chihiro managed to refill the tub because no face has given her all the token so she uh she's managing to put him he goes into the bathtub uh, i mean it doesn't do anything it's just it turns everything to a big uh muddy pile of of uh, of uh, filth and uh she's struggling she needs to take get the water running again because she thinks okay this is just dirt and slime and, and mud that needs to come off but it's not he has a thorn in him, you see. So, and when it's like a big abscess being released, and so they all help to pull out this thorn in his side, and out come all the out comes all this garbage from the river that uh, this spirit inhabits. So he goes there and releases, and you can see all the junk just being displayed on the floor. And Shintoism is very concerned with uh, with the humans' relationship to the environment, and Japan has. Uh, uh, it's it's always very they have a deep respect for uh, certain uh, different aspects of nature and usually there are spirits that are connected with the different aspects in the nature as well uh, and therefore they treat it with very much uh, gentleness and uh, and respect and Miyazaki's criticism of this comes forth when <laughs> he shows this uh, uh, I think I ex- I I suspect uh, he's criticizing humans for you know the uh, pollution of um, of the environment uh i don't know what his prescriptions would have been in terms of uh, policy regarding such a problem and uh, that's probably where we might disagree with him uh, i mean I, I don't know i just suspect that that's the case that he probably is somebody who favors uh you know intervention by the state to protect uh, these um, 
these uh, environmental phenomena. Right, so, or, or yeah. potentially uh, culturally, like by respecting right. Shinto religion, which I think that would be almost a market-type force. Exactly, and and it, it, it is in Japan to a very large extent. You see people living in very much in harmony with nature. It's, it's always respected. People don't pollute. They don't litter on the street. You can see this in Japan when you go. It's spotless, clean everywhere. People just don't litter. It's not what they do. Yet, so, yet they, they seem to have some kink up there. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, but it's uh, it, it, it is so. These these themes are showing in the movie in Haku himself in the 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 sludgy stink spirit that turns out was not a stink spirit. It's a river spirit, and and the way that is shown. I, I think really, really shows where Miyazaki is coming from, from an ideological perspective. And I find that very interesting. So that, that's, that's a very big thing that I think people should appreciate with the movie. It's sort of like his, his environmentalism is coming forward. And whether or not you agree with it or something, you, you can still see that, oh, man, the way he's doing it, the way he's displaying it really is, it's convincing and it's striking. I, I mean, the, the, uh, the visuals of it comes forward and it's, uh, I think it's very well done. So now Haku yeah. was also a river spirit, but kind That's of true. like the opposite spectrum of this blob monster. So is that like a yin yang thing going on or am, am I like oversimplifying? Uh, he, he, uh, he is a river spirit, but he, he is not plagued by the same problem. Uh, his problem is that there, he has no, nowhere to go back to. Uh, right, because his, his, his river, river dis- disappeared because of development, right? Uh, yeah, and it dried out. So, and the development was put put on top of it. So, I guess that is also kind of an abuse, if you if you will, quote unquote, on on his on his inhabit where where he uh, the river that he inhabited. Um, but I don't know because it says that it dried up and then the development came on top, or it was vice versa. That's not very clear. Uh, Are we saying that Miyazaki is criticizing urbanization or? Right, perhaps, perhaps he is. Yes, that is that is what I'm trying. But it, it, it's not that that is that is not very very clear though. I, I suspect that he's yes. Uh, yeah, because I could see it. I mean, the way he did it and used this environmental mm-hmm. things as a uh, story devices. Yeah, it didn't seem like it was beating you over the head with environmentalism. It was no. a way of just kind of just showing you, hey, these are the spirits, and this is what happens when this happens. And but the. This scene with the spirit with the thorn in its side being unlocked and out comes this garbage. That is just that. That's kind of like, <laughs> that's in your face a little bit. But uh, other than that, uh, uh, there are other things too. But I think that is probably the most the most striking uh, point he he's making there regarding environmentalism. Okay, uh, I do think it's powerful, but it's. Uh, uh, very well done. Well, um, before I, I interrupted Robert, I think you had something to say, and then I want to take us back towards the beginning of the movie. So, Robert. Yeah, no, I want to, I just, oh, what was it? Oh, Robert wanted to say, yes, no, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I don't remember what I was going to say. Sorry, guys. We <laughs> moved on. We moved on. The conversation moved on, and my brain moved on. Too. Yeah, unfortunately, that's how I operate as well. Well, so I want to go more towards the beginning of the film where, uh, what's her name? Chihiro? Mm-hmm. finds herself in this situation. And this is one of the reasons why I thought you had suggested this movie, because it seems to focus on work ethic and providing value uh, and having determination to make yeah. sure that you don't uh, accept rejection and that you're, you know, you're going to do something that's going to um, 
be valuable to someone else, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. And so that is that is. Mm-hmm. And then we've also got the contract situation where the witch takes the name of the person, has them sign a contract, and then basically controls them, or, or uh, they they're like an indentured servant to them, to her, and she makes them do you know her bidding or the the jobs like cleaning the big stink monster, like th- that was yeah. the low man on the totem pole job, and they gave it to her right. um, because she was a human and everyone else was a spirit of some sort. And actually they said, um, I think they actually said that humans stunk and it would be a few days of them, yeah. her needing to eat their food before she would, her stink would go away. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. But was that one of the reasons why, I mean, the contracts and the, um, you know, being industrious and being determined, was that one of the lessons that you drew from this or? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. That is definitely a, a theme that I think uh, is very libertarian. Her personal development in, in the movie is very interesting because in the beginning she's just little wimp who who just sits and whines and it starts already in the car she's just this kid is whining and just say oh this is like uh, we see these kids all the time right they're just whining and they're spoiled brats oh right yeah uh, i remember they were driving by and they're like there's a right. new school and she's like fuck. yeah she's like fuck school <laughs> yeah 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 exactly right and she's like sticking out her tongue to the school and she's still a little scary cat, you know, in the beginning. She, she's afraid. She doesn't want to take initiative. Uh, she's terrified. And she's, but she, little by little, she grows into this really, really courageous uh, person that has really taken personal responsibility and is now responsible for a lot of things that is going on and saving herself and saving Haku uh, and saving her parents. She has, she has a lot of responsibility on, his, on her shoulders that almost takes her down in the beginning. It almost breaks her. And it kind of breaks her until uh, Haku manages to give her that um, the food with a spell on that gives her her strength back. And from there, it's, it's all moving upward again. After she goes down to the pigsty uh, and can't really rec- and you know, Haku shows her where uh, this is where your parents are. They're not pigs uh, because of their... Uh, gluttonous behavior, which is another theme, uh, gluttony. Um, you know, I actually want to, can I pause you there and, and let's yeah. pick on the pigs for a moment? Yeah. Because I want to talk about like the um, the implied consent contract that is partaken when somebody enters a restaurant and you order food, you have not yeah. yet paid for it. And mm-hmm. there's a, there's an understated uh, understanding that they're not going to charge you like $500 for the coffee, at least not for right. their 10 years right when inflation like really takes hold right. here but <laughs> but like like you've agreed to the coffee but mm-hmm. in a reasonable priced amount like they can't present you the bill for like an extra astronomical price and yeah. i found that you know when when the parents found this food stand mm-hmm. they're like well there's all this food here and it's a it's a restaurant type thing and and there's nobody here but we're hungry so yeah. we're, we're gonna start eating and they even mentioned that they're willing to pay for it, but yeah, yeah, because yeah, no one's here, they're going to pay for it. So, so they're accepting this obligation or this uh, this contractual arrangement. Yeah. Um, but they didn't accept the consequence of that, where no. they're turned into pigs, right? Uh, because they're like it's some kind of magic spell or something, or is this like an yeah. entrapment that's happening with the the witch who's like what? Why is this happening? Basically, like what what ends up with? Why are the why are the parents enticed into eating this food, and why is it like a what is it like a Hansel and Gretel type situation where uh, they're they're sort of accepting something unknowingly, 
And so then they're under this spell, um, which that would not, you know, be a contract, right? Like they did not have right. full understanding of what they were agreeing to. Uh, yeah. Can you kind of go into that a little bit? Yeah, no, it's 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 weird because obviously that kind of spell and punishment is uh, is kind of over the top for uh, taking the food or quote unquote stealing the food. It, it, there wasn't anybody there. So obviously, if there's nobody there to sit you and serve you, you should probably not eat the food. And it's extra delicious because it's not from this world. It's from a different world. Um, and But I think what he wants to emphasize here, again, <laughs> is this um, the theme of gluttony and greed that, that he, he, he sort of wants to play on. That they just they just sit there and they just stuff themselves and it's just this disgusting thing where they just eat like pigs and therefore they get to be turned into pigs uh, by uh, stealing the foods from the spirits. But, uh, but they weren't they weren't stealing it though, at least not in a libertarian ethic. They were agreeing right. to pay for it, like that was their understanding. However, exactly. I will throw out there that there is a potential scenario where that food is intended for an event, mm-hmm. like a wedding or something, and and just because it's there doesn't mean. <laughs> You can just start eating it and expect right. it to be a restaurant. But um, if if what you're saying is is uh, how do you say his name M- Miyazaki? Yes, Miyazaki. Mm-hmm. Miyazaki uh, is is saying that they're being gluttonous and they're stealing the food, and the punishment therefore is they become pigs or they're you know they're they're put under this spell or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, then I guess I would disagree with the premise, but yeah. it makes sense in the film. Yeah, I mean, the the point I think he's making is that they are behaving and eating like pigs. Therefore, the proper thing to do there is to just turn them into pigs. I mean, <laughs> there's there's no rationale behind that except for just symbolism. Uh, the punishment does not correspond with the type of crime if, if there ever was one committed. I mean, yes, you can. If I walk in somewhere and there's nobody there and I can, there's nobody working there and I see nobody, I wouldn't just start eating the food. It's kind of like weird that they did that, but you know, you can hear them clearly say, "I'm willing to pay for the food." Right, but, right. And, uh, and here we in, can talk yeah. a little bit about punishment theory, where you know the the punishment needs to be commensurate with the crime. Exactly. No, pro- it's, it's proportional. Not. Yeah, <laughs> it's not. So they they but they entered a, a different world, a different paradigm that uh, doesn't really respond to human rationale the way we think. So and you see that how 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 all the spirits are treated too. I mean, you have they're essentially slaves to Yubaba. I mean, Kamachi, uh, Kamaji, uh, the Boiler Man. Yeah, the, the uh, you remember guy? the Boiler Man. I mean, he he is working there as a as a slave essentially uh day day in and day out to, to produce to produce the water for for the bathhouse right now now i want to mention one thing that that there appears to be an echo or another yin yang situation mm-hmm. with the gluttony and the parents right because it's played out again with no face or uh, yeah absolutely where he's very gluttonous but he's giving false wealth in response like it, it appears yeah. to be gold and he's eating and eating and eating and Mm-hmm. And getting, he's, print, he's printing money out of thin air. He's the Fed, essentially. Yeah, and he's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. But then uh, once they go in to cash in those chips, right, then it is yeah. revealed that they're dirt or uh, yep. no, nothing. Yep. Um, but that that seems to be an echo of the parents' gluttony. It, it, it kind of is, yes. Uh, and I think the interesting also thing about No Face, if we follow him, right, I mean, he becomes more and more sort of this he just grows and grows the more attention and the more stuff that he gets and uh, 
but he produces this thing, right? They, they think it's real gold, so and he just keeps spitting it out, and P, and they all get really, really greedy. That and again, he wants to play on greedy or Miyazaki. Uh, that the spirits themselves, when No Face, ta- I mean, he eats them, right? He eats them too. They get consumed by their own greed. Uh, essentially, I think that is what he wants to uh, display here. And uh, like you say, there is a correspondence to that and her parents uh, being turned into pigs because of their own gluttony too. So uh, No Face is, I mean, I don't know. I think No Face is probably the most impor- important character to, to analyze if you want to analyze one of the characters in, in the movie. It's, it's just, there, there are a lot of stuff to, to No Face. But I want to let uh, see what, what uh, you or Robert has uh, have to say before I before I go on. Yeah, let's let's go to Robert for a minute. I know we've talked about a lot, so you probably had a few ideas and then they've gone away and been replaced by something new, but <laughs> <laughs> what do you have at the moment? Well, I, I would have to say that, yeah, No-Face is the most mysterious and interesting character in the whole film. He's definitely someone where you're like not exactly sure what's going on, and I would say you don't ever really find out. Um, I'm kind of used to these Miyazaki films or this Japanese storytelling where nothing's ever fully quite resolved. It's just kind of like the story keeps going, but it, and just, it stops. And so we leave No Face at what, Baba Yaga or Yaga. What's her name? Sorry. Yeah, the sister, the, the good sister, the, the good witch. Yeah, there seems to be, yeah, what, what was that theme? The good witch, and then there's the bad witch, but there's the twin sisters. There's a lot of interesting themes in this movie. I also really enjoyed the, um, the name magic theme <laughs> because, you know, names are really powerful to people, but hearing your own name is kind of like a magical thing. And throughout fantasy and history, really, a lot of this, this name magic keeps coming up. And it really shows in this film where, you know, getting control of somebody by speaking their true name, like, like you can control demons by knowing their true name. And then it's also like um, the beginning of wisdom is to call things by their true name. So it's, it's a lot of fun, fun stuff in this one. But um, Olaf, I, I really do want to hear what you had to say about No, no Face. Yeah, uh, so I think No Face is this, I, it, it's very hard to, I, I want to draw parallels, No Face, with something else. And, wh- wh- I, you know, I'm, on one side, you know, he's this false thing, right, that that uh, produces uh, fake wealth. I mean, he's like, imagine the Federal Reserve printing money out of thin air. So he just drops gold that isn't really gold. It's 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 turns out to be worthless. But uh it's they accept it right as 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 money and you think that they're really really rich and then it just blows up in their face and it turns out that they it's it's useless uh, and he's this thing that keeps inflating the more and more he gets he gets more and more powerful and you really want that and i think that that's sort of the thing that it, the more you continue the, the bigger more powerful he will become so the best thing would be to just eradicate no face altogether it's like but they don't do that. They can't really do that for some reason. Chihiro manages to save No Face to go back to this uh, powerless sort of uh, wimpy little little spirit at the end when he when she feeds him the, this hard medicine that makes him just throw up everything and just becomes like small and slim again and kind of powerless. But it makes me think of sort of the minarchist position on government, right? Mm. Well, let's just take away all the power, but let's leave a little bit here. But No Face, given the nature of No Face, and we don't see this because the movie doesn't end, uh, and the movie ends before we don't know what's going to happen to No Face, right? But 
given what we have seen in the movie, what stops Snowface from be- becoming that thing again? I mean, this just seems to have this uh, in him. Right. That's the Alex uh, Jones uh, 1776 reset. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so yes, we can re- reset Snowface to this to this small thing again a tiny tiny government but government's just going to grow and become more powerful uh, and and become this beast again that just consumes and takes and loots and, and, and wishes and, to do harm like yeah it's going after um chihiro until it becomes small again yes exactly and, and chihiro is the only one that manages to to um to take on no face right and uh, and there's there's another uh, echo in here and that's with the growth of uh, chihiro's bravery and, and her mm-hmm. development as a character because she goes down those very same stairs on the outside of the building that um haku first tells her to go down to meet the boiler man and she's very timid about it because it's yeah. there's no railing it's very steep and it looks like yeah. you're gonna fall off she's very scared of this yeah but then later when she's running from uh no face after giving him the the bitter medicine and he's vomiting and whatever but chasing her and trying to kill her yeah, uh, she just glides down that stuff. She yeah. is agile and fearless, and and escapes far enough to where No Face loses his power to cause harm, and yeah. then she's um, gracious to him. Yeah, she's she like, takes him in again. Yeah, you want to go on the train? Let's go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's like the weird part. No, no, you have to get rid of all the tumor, man. Get rid of the tumor completely. You can't leave a little bit. It's gonna grow back. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My my <laughs> favorite argument with a. Minarchist. It's a little bit vulgar, but I'm like, okay, so you want to eliminate most rape, but not all. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's, uh, that's how I, that's how I could see no face from our perspective. That's how I analyze no face in the movie. Now I think most people who do watch the movie probably have analyzed no face differently. And there are many ways to do it, but that's really how I saw him. No face. This monster just became more powerful and more uh, frightening and more dangerous. The more, uh, the more you gave him. Right. Uh, now, well, now, definitely, I, I see your analogy of No Face being the Fed or a government. Right. But, and that can't, I mean, I'd be shocked if that was Miyazaki's no. attempt. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think it is. I think, I think he, No Face is the representation of greed. That is what it is. And then the people who gather and at, is attracted to No Face because of the gold, and then they get consumed, like he eats a few of them, they get consumed by their own greed. That's what he wanted to say, uh, in my opinion. Uh, that's the message I think he's trying to put forth. Right. Uh, now, now, they set up the the, the situation with No Face offering on this gold with the Stink Monster also being a paying customer. Yeah. So even though he's grotesque and mm-hmm. stinks really badly, money spends. And they're willing to take him and give him the, the bathhouse treatment because yeah. he's willing to pay. He's a paying customer. So this goes right. into the whole, how would the free market handle racism? <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay yeah go on right so you can have yeah. uh uh you know people could be racist yeah and not wish to uh have certain customers but they're only doing themselves harm mm-hmm. because they're pushing that revenue away right right There's, i mean racism is a non-issue in the free market right, right. or or yeah. if it is you you're you're paying for it you're yeah yeah you I mean, as, but it's a non-issue you're you as an entrepreneur you as a business owner are the ultimate person who will suffer from this Right, right. Uh, yeah, people might be sad to get turned away, but I mean, what is the public's response? I mean, racism isn't very popular. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, it just isn't. Like, if you are this racist business owner who's going to turn people away for for whatever reason, 
then I think the public will respond pretty negatively to to something like that. I mean, we, we like see this point. we see this all the time with the cancel yeah. culture thing, and and I think yeah. that goes too far, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that that people who would turn away others based on whatever criteria are doing mm-hmm. themselves a disservice, right? Yeah, no, I agree. And right, because for every consumer dollar that's out there, there are thousands of businesses that want that dollar and are vying for that dollar. Yeah. So yeah, you're absolutely right. You're you're hurting yourself and just gifting that money to your competitors. Right. So right. the racist bears the direct cost of their racism, and that will minimize it, right, rather right. than subsidize it. And uh, I I don't know where this quote's from. I think it's from a movie. A movie, but he's like, I don't see color. You know, black, white, whatever. All I see is green. Where he's like, I'm just going to look at, you know, who's willing to pay for my service. I don't care. Right. And and capitalism gets blamed for human greed and you know, how how terrible it is to really to really accentuate or whatever play on the worst things of humanity. But greed, I mean, you know, it's the quote from Wall Street that greed is good. But greed absolutely brings out the best in people when they when they value the dollar more than they you know hate the the race or whatever. I mean, if you challenge, if you channel the greed correctly, you will channel it to serve your fellow man. But if right. you channel the greed in the government, you will do a lot of, lot of harm and a lot of damage to people. Uh, so that is the difference. If you greed in the free market, you have to still produce something that people want or else you can't survive. But if you greed in the government, you can just take and that's, that's fine. So, I mean, I guess that's, uh, that's the difference. Greed will be channeled in ways that are, uh, uh, beneficial to mankind in the, in the yeah. marketplace. So and maybe, it's one of the great tragedies of history that robber barons are known as robber barons. These right. great <laughs> exactly. industrialists that mm. provided so much value to so mm. many people and made so many great services so inexpensive and you know available to the poorest of people, and yeah. they're known and demonized throughout history. It's right. like really terrible. All they did but, was improve the standard of living and lower costs and increase quality yeah, and uh, yeah. quantity and availability of their product yeah yeah no exactly i mean but what what is interesting though i think uh, i just looking at miyazaki recently in 2016 uh, i don't think he endured i think he ha- had uh, bad things to say about both the candidates that ran so he said trump was terrible he said hillary clinton is also terrible so i i thought that was kind of interesting like yeah, he that, didn't really take was, a side there either that was my take as well yeah <laughs> So, uh, so he's not just somebody who will like play team sports. Like he has some kind of philosophy with what he's doing. He's not just blindly going to say, you know, orange man. He's not the NPC guy. Uh, that's what I think makes him admirable. And, and he is staunchly anti-war, uh, which I think is really nice. So, so could, could I throw this out there that it's government or statism that enables racism to continue to persist? Yeah. And uh, perhaps uh, that yeah. could be an angle to attack statism mm-hmm. in, right. in some way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean if, if, you, if you just see what, you know, the way they spun it, right? I mean, the state was the enabler and the enforcer of the Jim Crow laws, for instance. And the fugitive and, slave laws. Yeah. Well, so, so Jim in Jim Crow is, is like more recent. So we, uh, people would probably have it. But yes, you're absolutely right. And then they get the you get the civil rights movement and everything and it gets outlawed and then the state takes credit for it it takes credit 
for outlawing segregation when he was enabling and enforcing it in the first place. Right, but they overcorrect because now they're forcing uh, association. Yes. Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, they should never have enforced and enabled anything in the first place. And now they go in and they write the Civil Rights Act, which allows the state again to go in and take over private property. So they never let the market work. They screw things up. And then when there's something to take credit for, even though I, I, I disagree with the ninth point there, which allowed government to go in and take over private property, so I would not have signed on to the Civil Rights Act. Um but then they go and take credit for it. It's just so, I mean. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's their way. They take the credit for all the good things that come from yeah. free market and voluntary interaction. Right. And then they demonize the free market right. when anything bad happens as a result of their multitude of interventions that we get additional interventions. Yeah, no, it's, it's ironic. <laughs> no, uh, no self-awareness at all. Yeah, you have people responding to the incentives created by these ridiculous interventions, and that's what's going to happen. And then, like you said, government just um, demonizes them for it. It's mm-hmm. like, you're the ones that created the, the incentives to do this. It's like in the, when the 2008 crash, when right. the government was guaranteeing all these crappy loans, all these ninja loans and everything else. Yeah. And then the market crashes and they're like, look at how terrible these bankers are. Yeah. And, and they call for more regulation, right? Which inevitably makes it very expensive to comply. So where does the small business owner usually go when he wants a loan to expand his business? It goes to the local community bank. Now those community banks are going to be re- reduced by the thousands because they can no longer afford to comply. So all these regulations just benefits the uh, the big ones are already there and wants to shield themselves from competition. Yeah, the regulatory capture and the uh, self-interest of the the players with uh, the stake, right? Yeah. It's, right? it's like Walmart saying the minimum wage is great. Well, they can they can comply with that. They can afford it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and they they would be yeah exactly, and 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 anything else that uh, man allows people to compete with them food wise, uh, any kind of food regulatory burden or uh, other things like that. Yeah, no, it's it's just it's depressing. All right, so what, one one final thing, and we get back to the movie a little bit. But uh, Robert, you mentioned that they were called ninja loans, which was like no income, no uh, assets, yeah. or no job. Mm-hmm. Uh, could could they use that term today, or would that be considered cultural appropriation and racist <laughs> and evil and the worst thing ever? Not when they do it, just when uh, some rando does it, then some get outraged on Twitter about it. Right? Did you see this guy in? Um, I want to say it was in Iowa. He was he was showcased on like a college football game and he had his Venmo uh, handle listed on there. And so people were like donating him money for like beer or whatever. And Anheuser-Busch and Venmo both like jumped on this because it became this viral sensation. And he was going to donate like a million dollars that was raised from this to a hospital for kids or something. And then some jackass reporter looks back eight years at some tweet the kid did when he was 16. And it was like potentially racist and and then anheuser-busch cancels it and they're like running this guy through the through the coals like he's the worst person ever when he's donating a million dollars to a hospital didn't that backfire on them though i mean it, that was kind of crazy like yeah, it did because because the yeah. reporter actually had worse shit in his yeah. timeline <laughs> it's, it's amazing soon you're gonna be able to uh you go to a job interview and they're going to sit and dig up uh, tweets from uh, 20 years ago and see if you potentially said something homophobic, uh, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. This, this tattletale culture is just yeah. pathetic. <laughs> it, is. it is the ultimate in pathetic playground bullshit. 
from yeah. a bunch of children. And this yeah. is what this is this is what passes for adult interaction these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's it's coming from the left too, almost exclusively. So it's it's very bad. All right, well, let's get back to the movie. I know we diverted for like the last ten minutes or so. Um, but I've noticed there's a bunch of echoes in here and I think I've kind of brought it up some yin and yang stuff and some like things that are brought up and then, uh, sort of brought up again. And uh, I'm not sure where I want to go because we are kind of needing to start winding down a little bit here, mm-hmm. but let's talk about more of the, um, the development of Chihiro and how yeah. she rediscovers her, her power or her ability because she's given a final test at the end to kind of like dissolve the contract that she was duped into signing. And her parents were duped into being under this spell because they accepted this food and and were punished for it. Um, but can we get into like what developed within her to be able to pass this final test? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I can go. I mean, I, I think you see, like I said before, throughout the entire movie, you see a display of the change of character of Chihiro that goes from little wimp crybaby to a uh, person with courage a person with confidence and that is true uh, exceptionally expo- uh, uh, displayed in the final test she just has more confidence in herself and her ability to do things uh she is she learns the sort of it's it's almost a lesson in in ethical and moral behavior and work ethic and everything that is is involved in her becoming this this uh, strong personality that she ultimately is uh, and a hero really for saving uh, her parents. And I think a lot of that has to do with her, her strive and her fight is embedded in her love for Haku, for something that she can't really remember, but something that is still within her subconsciously, her love for Haku that keeps her going and fighting and becoming better and better. And ultimately she does remember. And that is uh, one of the best mo- moments in the whole film, in, in my opinion, when she remembers where Haku is coming from and that releases Haku from his shackles too. So she saves everybody, ultimately. Yeah, and so... Haku was the one carrying her up to becoming this person. And she ultimately is the payback and saves him too. So it was a little confusing to me, this whole situation, because Lin tells her not to trust Haku mm-hmm. because Haku is under the spell of Yababa. Yep, that's Yet, true. Haku tells her things that actually do lead her to this discovery, right? Yep. So how much control did she have over him? And, and was he actually helping her? Or was Lin correct in warning uh, Chihiro not to listen to him? Yubaba had 100% control over Haku because Haku could not remember his name. It was just Haku. His real name was not Haku. It was Kuhaku, the Kuhaku River. And that is what ultimately... Uh, releases him from his shackles because when he remembers his name, he was then freed from his slavement to Yubaba. Right, but he did give information to Chihiro and Lin told her to not listen to him, but she did the things that Haku told her and it worked out. Right, yeah, no, exactly. But Haku was still doing dirty work on the side, stealing from Yubaba's sister. But I think he was ultimately a good person. It's just that he didn't have much choice for being uh, tied to Yubaba under a spell. So are you uh, saying that this was 4D chess, that Haku was doing Yubaba's bidding, yet was still able to slip the information as needed, like 4chan might, or uh, what's it called? The, um, oh, but what information, no, I'm a little, um, I'm not following exactly what information. So initially Haku told 
Chihiro, like yeah. right, hold your breath going going across the bridge mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then find this guy, the spider dude. Yeah. Ask for a job and don't take no for an answer. Yeah. And then start working for Yababa. Yeah. So maybe that was it. Maybe that was just to get her to be under the contract with Yababa. Oh, yeah. You can't. I mean, Shahida would have not survived. Shahida would have been turned into something else, an animal or something uh, uh, useless. But if you get the job and Yababa can't say no, Yababa is not able to say no. She took an oath. So she can't give no to an answer for somebody who insists on asking her for a job in the bathhouse. Ultimately, she is tied. She has a spell on herself, kind of. So, uh, so Haku was was doing Yababa's bidding, but yeah. it just happened to backfire. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not following now. So, so uh, Haku was doing Yababa's bidding, and Haku was telling Chihiro to not take no for an answer, right? Because Yababa has to say yes. Yes, that would then enslave uh, Chihiro to Yababa yeah. with yes. the contract, yes. which was Yababa's goal. But that ended up being Yubaba's downfall. Well, I don't know if it was Yubaba's goal. I don't think Yubaba initially wanted to uh, um, contract Chihiro and give her a job. I think she just wanted to make her disappear, or, uh, turn her into an animal or something like that, just like he did for her parents. But when she's under contract, she can no longer do that. So why does Haku uh, help her and why does Lin tell Chihiro not to listen to Haku? Well, there is, I mean, there is a conflict between characters. So Haku, I think, knows what is best for Chihiro, and he genuinely wants to help her. I think that's clear. But he also is tied to his own spell, and he, he, he knows that. But he also knows what Yubaba's limits are. So he's trying to help Chihiro all the time. Lin, I think, just recognized that Yubaba goes and, and do this weird thing. For, I, I mean, the Haku goes and do this weird thing for Yubaba, and that's just, she's just aware, and she tells Chihiro not to you know, hang out and listen to Haku, but I, I clearly Haku knows how to help Chihiro, uh, or at least to make her survive in that environment. Because without his help, that would that would never have happened. And uh, otherwise, Yubaba would not have contracted Chihiro. She would not have given her a job at the bathhouse. She would have just gotten rid of her completely. That that would have been the end of it. Okay, I might need to watch it again and try to make sense of all of this. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's. That's probably true. I mean, it's hard to get it the first time. There, there are many constraints put on put on character, and once you get to understand what they are, it, it makes more sense. So, what what was the nature of the contract? Because Daniel used a turn of phrase where he said she's enslaved to this contract. Uh -huh. Clearly, you can't voluntarily enslave yourself. Right. To this contract. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, here you could, man. This <laughs> in this uh, in this kingdom of. Uh, of uh, the spirits of Yubaba, the Yubaba land, Yubaba kingdom, uh, everybody, everybody there were essentially slaves. They could not escape. You hear Lin also say at the at the point in the movie, he said, one day I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to get on that uh, on that train. But nobody can get on the train because nobody has tickets and nobody can escape because nobody, nobody remembers where they're coming from. Yubaba has stolen their names and they are no longer able to uh, to um, uh, get fr uh, free from her, essentially. So okay, so this is some sort of ensorcelling contract. This oh is not yeah, like a real. This would not be a valid contract. Oh no, it's 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 completely uh, invalid. <laughs> it's uh, well, unless you're Walter Block, perhaps, then he would make the argument <laughs> that you can voluntarily save yourself. Then uh, yeah, I'm sure there is. I'm sure he could. Uh, he could try to 
explain why that's you know possible from a libertarian perspective yeah. that you can voluntarily enter slavery i don't know <laughs> well you get to sing songs and you know all that Pick stuff. And sing songs uh, yeah. slavery is not that bad <laughs> that's what's was quoted in the new york times later <laughs> yeah that was pretty slanderous uh, we love walter yeah. we've had him on uh we've, yeah. we've interviewed him twice and and uh, we're probably due to have him on again sometime but, yeah uh continue robert I, I know you were going down a line here oh no you were wrong about that no i was just curious to know talk about the contracts because like you said i mean libertarians free markets were all about contracts and mm-hmm. uh, you know she she breaks the spell at the end and the contract disappears and breaks out but you know any kind of valid contract would, would be completely voluntary on both parties it's just an agreement for both parties to act in a certain way yeah so yeah yeah it's just she she has no chance she's uh, she's in the, she cannot escape basically so she's very much limited her only chance to survive is to enter servitude to your baba so, so there was never any promise of because all she wants to do is to get her parents back and yeah. turn out pigs. Is there a promise by you, Baba, that you know if Jahira works in this bathhouse for a certain amount of time, she will do that? No, there is there is no promise, any such promise. The only thing that exists that gives her hope is that Haku seems to always have that plan in mind. She always seems to you know want want to help her to get free and help her parents. So he is he is ultimately the one that makes you know uh, that pitch to your baba you know you you have to uh, you have to set her free because right, he does tell chihiro to you know when he takes her to the stables she's like yeah identify who your parents are and remember them mm-hmm, because exactly. it, it will be important later yeah 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 that i is. guess i guess that's kind of where my problem a little bit with the movie is i mean chihiro is a great protagonist she does all kinds of things uh, she solves all kinds of problems in the film but it seems to be that the main problem is that her parents are pigs and there should be some kind of clear path that she is trying to go on to get them to be returned to human form. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it, she just kind of lucks into it at the end. And I guess maybe that just leaves a tiny little bad taste in my mouth. Oh, okay. Yeah, there, you, you can't. Yeah, it's hard to see how it's going to play out exactly. There's no clear path to like saving the parents. That's uh, yeah. It's always unclear what's what's actually going to happen. Right, but that uh, is that is she's her. solving all these. Yeah, she's solving all these little problems along the yeah. way, mm-hmm. and it, ultimately she does accomplish her goal. But it seems like you know there should have been like some sort of clear step by step process or a path or something she was working towards mm-hmm. to ultimately do that. Instead, it was well, I'm going to solve this problem here. I'm going to solve Haku's problem. I'm yeah, do this. I'm going to do that. Yeah, and, and she solves the problem because there is a conflict that nobody notices until the end of the movie, and that is the moral ambiguity of the characters of Zeniba versus uh, Yubaba, so the sisters. Uh, they're both kind of bad, but they're both redeemable characters uh, at the end. Why is Zeniba bad? I thought she was the good witch. Well, she doesn't seem to be very... Yeah, she... She is the good witch, right? But she's very not friendly to to Chihiro at all in the beginning, and she wants to kind of kill Haku for stealing the uh, the magic golden seal. Right, but she did say that that Haku tried to cut her in half. I think. Oh, she did. After the, she cuts when she's just that little piece of paper, Haku chops her. Oh, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. But it, I, she, it, it, there is something to. You know, Haku did you so they have an antagonistic relationship, right? Yubaba and Zeniba. And Haku does Yubaba's bidding, she goes and she steals the seal. 
and there's a magic spell attached to it so that anybody who who has it will essentially die uh, and uh, but Shahiro managed to save Haku by giving her the, the remedy there from river spirit okay so Zaniba uh, and Yababa are the yin yang of each other yeah, identical yeah. yet opposites and they even say that explicitly mm-hmm. yeah, precisely yeah but I think Yubaba is at the end kind of she she redeems herself a little bit, you know, she, by she, fulfilling the contract. Yeah, by uh, acknowledging that she, you know, uh, uh, did a challenge and she won and she should be set free and she agreed. Ultimately, did that. So. Yeah. So even the baby was like, "Don't do this final challenge." Let's talk about right. the baby. What does the baby represent? <laughs> yeah, that's a very tricky one. I've been I've been thinking about that one for a lot. It's <laughs> really hard to understand what the baby represents. I. I personally don't exactly know how to interpret the baby. Uh, it's uh, this obviously this sweet spot that she she cares a lot about. She she is very very concerned. I think it's the only other it's the only characters that she's concerned about. She pretty much despises and treats everybody like crap except the baby. Right, the baby she's very gentle, very uh, very kind to all the time. Uh, so it's it's sort of showing her her good side in those few moments that she interacts with a baby. That's where you can see the uh, human side of Yubaba. Uh, I would say that or, it represents her vulnerability or her uh, yeah, her weakness. Yeah, yeah. Because tell me if I'm wrong, but the baby is what No Face falsifies. Mm-hmm. Not only does he make all this gold, but he makes a fake version of the baby out of the three-headed uh, green dudes or the three heads. They, no face turns them into a representation of the baby, and then Wait, when, no face does. I thought the good witch did. Yeah, the Zaniba did turn them into, uh, turn the three heads into a baby, and the baby turned into a, a rat, right? Yeah, and the bird into a little fly or whatever. Okay, yeah. all right. See, I thought that when the gold that uh, no face had offered up, and then um, Yababa was like, "Well, this isn't enough to pay for the damage that has been caused." And then the gold turns into dirt. Yeah. So it's shown to be false. And then mm-hmm. the baby moments later is shown to be false. Yeah. I thought yeah. that that meant that no face had done that. And that was. The oh, only- no, that was that was your Baba spelling all the illusion spells that were active. OK. All right. All right. It's starting to maybe make more sense. So <laughs> so this yeah. is one of the audience. This is one of those movies that you can watch, listen to us, and then watch again, and maybe it'll make more sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it probably, if you just hear us talking about the movie now, it's like, oh, what, what is this? You know, that it seems like a very strange... No, it's, uh, there's a lot of uh, stuff going on. I think it's hard to... Uh, I think you have to watch it a couple of times in order to really, really grasp the fundamental meaning of, of uh, the series of events that, that lead up to certain things. All right. Well, maybe you can do a summarize a summary of that with your score out of 10 on this. Cause we're at that time where we do the final summary and review. Unfortunately, I know that there's plenty more we could like dive into because it is a bit ambiguous. There's a lot of symbolism here and we can like interpret things in certain ways, but we are at that time limit. So uh, Olaf, why don't you take it away? Give us the summary and review and uh, the score out of 10, please. Okay, yeah. So Chihiro is the little girl who was supposed to move with her parents to new town. They get sidetracked and eventually trapped in the land of, um, of spirits or uh, kami that they were called in Japanese. Um, her parents get turned into pigs by uh, 
being gluttons and eating the spirit's foods. And Shahida then is set on a path to um, to save herself, save her parents, and bring them back to the human world. But in the meantime, she does more than that while being in this in this different world. She ultimately saves, saves her her friend that uh, saved her when she was a child. We didn't talk about Haku saving her from drowning when she was little. Um, so she ends up being the hero of the movie and makes it back to the human world with her parents at the end. Uh, I, I think it's a very powerful movie. I, I don't perhaps agree with all the ideological uh, points that uh, Miyazaki is trying to make, uh, but a lot of them I do. And uh, I, I find them very beautifully illustrated. I find it to be a very complex story, very, very complex characters. They're morally ambiguous at times. You don't really know if they're good or bad. And uh, if they are bad, they, they some of them are redeemable. Uh, so, yeah, no, I, I, I will give it a solid uh, solid eight, eight and a half. All right, eight and a half for a movie that you said was so awesome you watched 20 times. Yeah, yeah, it's I, 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 10. I don't think I can ever give somebody a 10. I mean, there's always some. I'll say eight and a half. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, and and also thank you for the deep dive and explanation of of your understanding of this because upon an initial viewing, uh, it is a bit uh, hard to follow and hard to understand. Now, granted, <laughs> some of it might be because I watched it over the course of three different nights, and yeah. I need to actually watch it in a continuous fashion, and maybe it'll like make more sense, especially after this discussion. So I almost need to withhold my score or give it a tentative score of like say a six or six point five. Um, with potential for uh, additional uh, revision of that score <laughs> upon another viewing or two of this film. But I, I, I really appreciate you bringing this as a suggestion because I think it does have so much stuff going on uh, and it brings up so many different things to discuss. And we, we had a, a, a bunch of different, you know, little rabbit trails to go down in our discussion that interweaved libertarian ideas and economic theory that is just uh, right up our alley for this show. So thank you for that, Olaf. And so I'm, I'm going to go with 6.5 at this point. So 8.5 for you. And we'll go to Robert. So Spirited Away, it, it reminds me of, of another very, very famous anime. Um, my experience with it is very similar, although I think I like the other anime better. It's the, um, everyone knows the name Akira. So Akira, I remember when I first watched the, that movie back in like the late 80s when it first came out on home video in the United States. And I was just blown away because I'm a huge art fan. Love the line art, the frames per second. Akira so kinetic, the action. And I'm sitting there watching Akira and just loving it. Loving the whole thing. I've seen it multiple times. But I remember one night I had some roommates and we were all sitting around. And we wanted to watch a movie. And I'm like, let's watch Akira. And about halfway through the film, I could tell everybody else was just tuning out. Everyone else was bored. They couldn't really follow the story. They just lost interest in the movie. And I didn't really know why at the time, but I think it's the same thing that happens in this movie, is that there isn't a clear objective for the protagonist, or at least the protagonist isn't actively working towards that goal the entire time. And I, I know it's kind of like a Japanese storytelling style difference than there is in the West, but I think that's why this, these, this genre, or at least anime in general, appeals to certain people more than others. Like there are just some people who like anime or like, I don't get it. It's not for me. I, you know, it, it looks cool, but I, I fall asleep watching this stuff. And I think it, it, it's just the 
the way that Chihiro, you know, she's got this problem, but then she just kind of goes and wanders off and does other stuff. And so even today when I was watching the film, I found myself, well, I got some other things I can do while I leave it on. And it, that's that's kind of bad. It, it really, you're, you should be engaging your audience the entire time. And, and maybe it engages other people the entire time. And it's just not quite for everybody. And that's fine. So for a movie like this, for me and Akira, it's great. Although I'd say this isn't as good as Akira for me, maybe because I'm a guy and I like all the cool action and the monsters and stuff. But um, for me as an anime type oriented person with the love of the art and the, I even like the Japanese story storytelling. It, it, it's not what I would do per se, but I appreciate what they're doing. And I, I, I appreciate that it works for them and their culture. And it obviously works for millions of people around the world that love it. But I think if you would, it would work better for Western audiences in general, if you didn't kind of have this kind of meandering, and I don't mean it meandering, like just kind of like, you know, not super directed, like not, not necessarily a straight arrow for the protagonist, take some twists and turns and do some other things, but always be working towards that goal. Always be working towards some specific, clear end goal that the audience can wrap their heads around and get on board with what's going on inside that character's head. Like, I got this goal. How am I going to achieve it? Okay, I'm going to go on this journey with this person and see how they get that done. That's interesting. But when they're not even working towards that goal, kind of seems like they don't care about it. And if they don't care about the end goal in the movie, then I, as the audience, don't care about the end goal of the movie, and I lose interest. And so I, I think that that happens for a lot of people. Um, even though I think Miyazaki, he's a master. Studio Ghibli has put out tons of amazing good stuff, but this movie isn't my favorite of theirs, and probably for this reason. So I think it's a great film. I'm, I'm going to give it like a, a seven, maybe a seven point three, seven point four. But um, for those reasons, uh, it's not it's not a masterpiece for me. But I really do appreciate the conversation from Olaf and his perspective that he brought to this. I really enjoy the Shinto stuff. Um, the Shinto stuff that appears in like um, Princess Mononoke, I think is also fantastic. Um, so that's a lot of fun. And then, of course, the, uh, the economic discussion and the environmental type stuff. That's all really cool. So uh, that's it for me. Um, thanks, everybody. That was fantastic. Yeah, so. and, and quite a specific score there, Robert. And, and don't forget to mention the racism that we talked about, because I think that's <laughs> actually very important. It's a very important distinction for the free market that it would be the the costs of it would be borne by the individuals perpetrating it. And and so I think that's very, very uh, insightful uh, and beneficial for those who advocate for the free market. But um, I want to uh, start to wind this down here. So thank you, Olaf, for being our guest. Uh, We're going to be back with another show next week. I know it's, it's hard to imagine we're, we're so consistent. We do a show every week, uh, but we will have, someone who wants to do another anime with us at some point, though we can't do two animes back to back. But at some point in the future, we're going to do Cowboy Bebop with this person. He is anarchist Luke Tatum. But instead of another anime, we're going to do Dune with him, the David Lynch film starring the mayor of Portland, uh, Kyle, uh, what's his name? McCullough? McClanahan, something like that. Like the the original Dune movie? The original Dune movie, The Spice. With, With Sting? With Sting and The Spice. Snaps. All right. Yeah, it's going to be good. He's actually read the novel, and so he's going to have a lot of insight to bring to this. So that's going to be the show next week, Dune with Anarchist Luke Tatum. And then at some point in the in the future after that, the next anime film we do will probably be a Cowboy Bebop with Luke Tatum again. 
But uh, Olaf, I want to thank you for joining us for this episode of The Last Nighters, talking about Spirited Away. This is episode 91. It can be found at uh, the Launchpad Media and also at lastnighter.com slash 91. And uh, Robert, what prizes can people win if they uh, want to support us in, in particular ways? Well, they get all the pats in the backs and the shout outs and the good feels. They can um, they can leave a review on the iTunes or the iPad or the whatever kind of iDevice you have. You can leave a comment. You can subscribe to us on the YouTube. Leave a comment on the YouTube. You can watch us live. You can support us on Patreon. You can talk about us. You can talk about us on the Facebook. You can join up on our Facebook group and uh, interact in, with us there. That'll be that'll be good times. Yeah, and we'll give a gateway to all those things at our show notes page at lastnighters.com slash 91. So, uh, Olaf, thanks again, and uh, I will say good night from last night, everyone. Thank you. All right, and we'll continue the transmission on uh, the Actual Anarchy podcast for a few more minutes before we get into some potential Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which is available for our Patreon supporters. And you can get in on that at actualanarchy.com slash Patreon. Olaf is on the East Coast, so I know it's getting late for him, and it is a Thursday night, so uh, he's probably going to have to go to work pretty soon. And he's got two small children uh, who are probably trying to sleep at the moment. But uh, before we get into that, I did want to bring up one thing that um, really stood out to me in this film, and that was uh, the symbolism of the pigs in this movie and I kept liking in it, likening it to animal farm. And I'm wondering if that is somehow played into why pigs were used as the uh, idea in the film, or does anyone else see similarities with, with the film animal farm or the book animal farm? Huh? The pigs were the smart ones in animal farm, right? Wasn't Yeah. They so, were the commissars or the, uh, the, yeah, they were the communists, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. They were the ones who were more equal than everyone else. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I've never, I didn't, I didn't, I've never thought about it. So you're the first one bringing it up to me. So that's, uh, that, that's a new, uh, new perspective that's brought to me. I need to let it, you know, sink in and think about it some more. That's, uh, never heard that one before. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely, definitely see the greed aspect, aspect and the gluttony aspect, but I don't know if I see any kind of political commentary. I, I could, ha- I would have to uh, rewatch to, uh, see that maybe. Yeah. Animal Farm's a movie that, um, I know we've talked about maybe doing in the past and, and I'm sure it's on our list. We have this big uh, Google spreadsheet list that we've shared with each other, like making plans and things like that. But there's, I don't know, a few hundred movies on there that we haven't done yet. And this is uh, episode 148. So we've, we've made a good dent in our list. We're chipping away at it. You know, it takes time. Yeah. But they keep making, we might, we might live to complete it one day. Yeah. They're always making new movies though. So that's, that's kind of a guess. There's just, there's just the two of us making this show. And there's like dozens of directors and studios making movies all the time. It's outrageous. <laughs> yeah. So content for days for everyone. But, uh, you know, we, we can probably wind this down uh, and potentially get in some Kathleen Turner Overdrive. Like I said, that's available for Patreon supporters. So go to actualanarchy.com slash Patreon. You also hit up the uh, show notes page here at actualanarchy.com slash 148. And uh, Olaf, any final words for audience? And then uh, we'll say goodnight. Yeah, no, I think uh, I would just suggest watching the movie. Um, even if you didn't get a sense of is it a good movie is it, I don't really understand what's going on I, I I think I think most people will appreciate it I think a lot of people have seen it maybe even perhaps or listening and watching this but if you haven't I, uh, I strongly suggest I don't know where you can probably where you can go and get it though 
I mean, you can probably buy, you know, discs like DVDs and things, but people don't really use that anymore. So I haven't checked where where you can uh, view it in terms of uh, uh, services for that. I'm not sure. Right. And then uh, Robert, as you said in the open, was 0 for 6 on being able to play yeah. this on a DVD player. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, yeah, it's kind of interesting uh, how how challenging this might be to, to locate. I actually looked for it uh, to purchase it digitally and I couldn't get it. Um, right. No, it's very strange. Uh, yeah. There, there are ways you can get it, wink, wink. But, uh, you know, so, uh, but in terms of, you know, Netflix and things like that, I haven't seen it. So I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly where to turn for those types of services. Right. Well, just keep trying because uh, per Olaf, it's an awesome film and it's worth watching 20 times. And it might take that many times to understand <laughs> what's going on. <laughs> but uh, thanks again for being our guest. And I hope you can stick around for a few more minutes uh, for the Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which we do right after this. Uh, any final words, Robert? All the final words, sirs. I'll catch you next week. Um, sorry about today. I mean, I thought the show went well, but I've just been so so scatterbrained and hectic that I'll, I'll try and redeem myself next. All right, we'll be hitting up a dune with Anarchist Luke Tatum next week. Peace out, everyone. Maximum freedom. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do. days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.